but the process of working with ayahuasca is all about developing a relationship with the plants. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. If you know me, you know that my work is really centered around a single question. What does it mean to live a good life, and how can we do it? That inquiry has led me to travel many places around this globe and to talk to many people, some of whom have very interesting views, very different views. One of them is the lady I talk with today, Rachel Harris. She's written a book called Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, and Anxiety. Rachel is a psychologist. She had a private practice for 35 years. She was a researcher for 10. She's received awards from the National Institutes of Health and she's published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals, and she's also worked as a consultant to Fortune 500 companies. She has a website called listeningtoayahuasca.com. In this interview, we talk about ayahuasca, what it is, what the potential benefits are, what the potential risks are, the dark side, if you will. That's a disclaimer that I really want to stress here, is that this substance is currently illegal in the United States, there are special exceptions for people to use it in religious ceremonies, but um, it's a little bit out there. So with that, I realize it's something you might have heard of. Maybe you haven't, maybe you've tried, but I hope through this conversation, you get a better sense of what it is, the benefits that it might have for humanity, or maybe the idea will come clear to you that it's not for you. Wherever you are, that's just fine. I realize this interview won't appeal to everyone, but I don't think there ever will be an interview that will. And if there was, probably a boring interview. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Rachel Harris. Rachel, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Will you tell me please, what is life about? Oh, that's right, you start with those kinds of questions. (laughs) You know, I actually have an answer for that. I think life is about learning. And um, if we don't get the message, life gives it to us more dramatically. So I, I think it's really about learning and sort of a side, a secondary corollary is maybe healing. And I mean, I'm at the stage of life where I'm saying, I have to get this worked out because I don't want to come back next lifetime and face this same shit. Oh, can I say that? The same (laughs) stuff (laughs) all over again. So I think it's learning and healing. Mm. That's probably a minority point of view. And that for a lot of people, life is about making money. (laughs) So, you know, I don't want to ignore that. Um, And I've seen people do that most of their lives. And then as they begin to realize that death is approaching, that this is, you know, they're not going to take it with them, they begin to switch. And so that's a very interesting phenomenon. And then there's another, another one where um, you might want to look at a book called, uh, Quant- the, the title of the book is Quantum Change. And can I go off on this? Can yeah, I talk about this? And so it's based on it, the book is the the popular version of a couple of psychological um, papers that were published in professional journals. 
but the study was done in actually New Mexico and uh, the psychologists advertised for people who had had a spiritual experience of any kind that changed their lives. And they got like 50 or 60 people that they interviewed. And one of the ways that their lives changed was in terms of their values. And they went from, you know, money, power, fame, something like that, to contributing and helping and personal development. Their values really took a major shift. And um, the psychologist 10 years later found most of these people and interviewed them again. And those new values that they had taken on after a spiritual awakening, really, they had maintained consistently. So these people really changed their lives and it was a permanent change. And Mm -hmm. that's remarkable that, you know, people don't, I mean, psychotherapy doesn't reliably do that. It yeah. was a spiritual experience that really shifted your question. What is my life for? Yeah. I think this is, um, I think this is so fascinating because these spiritual experiences, what you're talking about is perhaps spiritual awakenings are things that not everyone believes in. Not everyone has, right? Many, many people do, of course, for some people they're precipitated by a trauma, yes. right? Other people it's some kind of, inspiration or maybe grace, you know, something like that. Yes, exactly. And this is something that you have devoted your, your life to at least the professional life, right? Like the last 40 Um, years. Will you talk about your background? What is the work that you do? What is the work that you've done? What's led you to have this insight that this is what life is about? Yeah. Well, my father was not happy with this was what my life was about. <laughs> he was a businessman. So this, you know, this was not um, what he thought life was about. But my mother, on the other hand, was a mystic. And so she was very happy about this. I mean, she would, you know, I remember when I was a little bit older, you know, in middle school, maybe she would, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and she would go what we called down the shore. And Um, what she would do is she would just sit and watch the waves. Now, you know, this was in the 50s. So who does that? (laughs) So, you know, that was sort of the, 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 what was in the atmosphere in the home. And that, and so, you know, my interest in spiritual experience started very, very young. And my mother, you know, talked about it. So it wasn't foreign to me in any way. And that was the guiding light for me. Um, what, what, kind of, what kind of business was your father in? He was a CPA, uh, but a, an archetype CPA. And oh. he loved his work. <laughs> it, it, and, it sounds like this is, this is proof positive that opposites attract if you've got this very business-minded <laughs> person with this mystic who watched the wave? Oh, well, it was a, the marriage was a disaster. <laughs> I oh. mean, that was never going to work. No. <laughs> so um, they momentarily attracted <laughs> mm. enough for me. Um, uh, so, um, so for me, it was part of the air that I breathed from very young. And I remember, you know, when I, when I graduated from college, I went right to Esalen into a, what was called a residential program, which, and, 
I don't know if your listeners know what Esalen Institute is. They can Google it. It's really the first growth center that that sponsored um, workshops in human potential. And it's in Big Sur, California. So it's had a lot of press over the years. And so I was all of 21, fresh out of college, went right there into their residential program, which was focused. It was just 11 handpicked people. And we met together for 50, 60 hours a week. And it was six months. And that program was all about meditation and body work and psychological work, healing. And, And this is what you had studied in college with psychology? I was a psychology major, but I was searching for this sort of thing. And this was not traditional undergraduate psychology. I mean, this was, I'm talking about 1968. Mm. So this was before people would talk about humanistic or transpersonal psychology. It was just beginning. So I got the standard undergraduate psych education. And, um, but Esalen was a real center for exploration. And I have always said, that's been my foundation. That's more of a foundation for me than, than you know, my graduate degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, legendary um, so, place yeah, where right. I know you had the chance over, you've had the chance over the years to interact with some very well-known, very respected names. Um, people like Houston Smith, people like right. Dan Groff. Uh, that some listeners will definitely be familiar right, with. Right. But, and maybe we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but part of the reason that, I, that I'm asking about this professional background, I just want to lay a little groundwork here because part of what we'll talk about is a lot of what we'll talk about as your book, Listening to Ayahuasca, right? Which is something that many people either don't know about, are afraid of, misunderstand, you know, want to do, <laughs> but aren't <laughs> sure it's safe, you know, this kind of thing. And and people write about this plant medicine from many different angles. Yes. Right. But part of what I really appreciate about your work is I think that it's grounded in a background. While there is this spiritual and maybe even mystical aspect to, there is a Western, rational, scientific approach as close as there can be, I, as I understand. Right. That I think my, my graduate. My graduate, deg- the PhD is in research. Right. I was, I was at a medical school in a research office for a decade. You know, we did grant writing and, um, you know, we wrote articles for professional journals. So it was all statistical and, and sci- it was science. Yeah. So maybe we'll just jump right to the book. So you've written this book, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression addiction, PTSD, and anxiety. Um, let's just start with what is, what is ayahuasca? Yeah. So ayahuasca is, is a, a concoction of two plants that are found in the Amazon. And uh, the indigenous tribes throughout Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, um, use it as a medicine. So it's considered a healing medicine. And uh, the shaman uh, who use it are, they, they have medical clinics. It's really the major medical provider for these indigenous tribes. And ayahuasca is a combination of two plants. And so it's kind of the, one of the, the you know, the teacher plants, the, you know, the main plants. But they also use all kinds of other plants. I mean, they're really 
pharmacists, the shaman or pharmacists, they know about thousands of plants and what they're good for and how to use them. And, and so when, when the clinic is open and the shaman is treating people, he, he or she has a, you know, a whole library in, in the jungle of what plants to use for what ailments. And when the anthropologists and botanists, the academics came into the jungle and found this medicine that the indigenous natives were using, they said, well, how did you know to combine these two plants to get this uh, response in a human being? Because it's a, it's a biochemical interaction between the two plants that leads to a psychedelic journey. And, um, you know, the, the native, the shaman would just look at them kind of curious and say, well, the plants told us. And, you know, the Westerners, that, we, that doesn't make sense to us. We don't know what to do with that. But that's a really, really important little story because, and this is outside the Western scope, but the process of working with ayahuasca is all about developing a relationship with the plants. And it's ayahuasca, and then maybe it's tobacco. And so the, the shaman know which plants to use because they have a relationship with those plants. Yeah. You know, when I hear this, I think of something I read once about George Washington Carver that famously has a relationship with the peanut, <laughs> right? Who oh, yeah, prolific. right. Right, right. And I remember reading just a little vignette about his biography and how he became so uh, pro like proficient with the plant. And it was that, uh, I, I, as I read when he was young, he would just walk through meadows. He would walk through for, and he would just pay attention and he would listen. And he, and I'm certainly not an expert on his life, but I've read that he basically said a similar thing. Like the plant would tell me what it needed, you know, it'd tell me how to nurture it and how to foster it. Yeah. You know, really yeah, a lot of, yeah. Gardeners and botanists, people talk about that. Yeah. There is, you know, there's an Italian, oh, I'm, I'm going to, the title of the book is Thus Spoke the Plant, mm. and I'm not going to be able to call up her name. It's an Italian name, and she's a botanist working in Australia, and um, I'm, she, you know, she had a, a growing, you know, she's a young scientist, and she had a, a promising career, and then um, she, she, drank ayahuasca and ayahuasca basically told her what, what um, research study to create, what plants to use for a research study. Mm. And she did it and she found it, it, it's an amazing book. It's easy to read too. It's not, as, it's not a scientific article that the plants learned and communicated with her and so it was kind of a breakthrough research study, but because she said she was told to do this by a plant, it's hurt her career. I mean, this is not acceptable. Yeah, which, and so. in that, I'm reminded too of how many, right? Like the history of science is the history of being wrong. <laughs> we see, <laughs> right? And, and people who, now certainly not everyone who challenges convention is right. <laughs> so right, just right. saying that you have a contrary point of view doesn't in and of itself prove anything, of right. course. However, I sometimes marvel that we don't have more of a, like a, an understanding or the possibility that someone could be right, that we do attack people who have these dissenting points of view. It's to me, it's very remarkable. But, you know, it's, this is outside the Western worldview and it's very threatening. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in talking about, you know, threatening the idea of this, um, well, before we leave this topic uh, about the plants and listening to plants and, and maybe the role that plants play in existence or in, in our lives or that they can, uh, I remember reading something once that Terrence McKenna suggested about that perhaps plants are actually the more evolved <laughs> it's possible. You know, on this planet and that they've been here for millions of years. And Well, they're certainly listen. doing less harm than we are. <laughs> yeah, less harm. And, and this idea was for me, this just to entertain it as a possibility was kind of amusing that many yes. animals evolved to help move plant seeds around. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, they do do that. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. that's a really interesting view. And, and not one as we're talking about in this Western paradigm where we're at the top, right? And right. these are natural resources to be used and consumed. And as exploited. And exploited. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But with, um, with what we're talking about with these being threatening, some of these, and, and certainly ayahuasca is not the only plant that's threatening. Right. Uh, you know, with this being on the schedule one controlled substance here in the yeah, United States and so forth, why... Why is that? What's your understanding of why is this illegal in the United States? Well, they all were made illegal. This was Nixon's war on drugs. So they were all made um, dangerous schedule one in the early 70s. And, and this had a, um, a racist tint to it. I mean, this is by making this whole list of drugs illegal. It was a great way to throw people in jail. And most of the people who were thrown in jail were brown and black people yeah. of color. So yeah. it's beginning to change and, and it's beginning to be acknowledged that it had, that Nixon had this racist uh, tinge to his policy. Yeah. So with that, okay. So we've talked a little bit about what it is. We've talked about the threatening nature that it, that many people, you know, associate with it and other, other um, plants and substances for sure. But let's talk now about what are the potential benefits? What are the potential benefits of, of doing ayahuasca? Well, uh, ayahuasca, like all, all the psychedelics, raises serotonin levels in the brain. And that's the same thing that antidepressants do. Um, and so, you know, this is one of our most, antidepressants are one of our most popular prescriptions in the country. I yeah. mean, besides the painkillers, people seem to like those too. But um, yeah, I mean, we've had uh, uh, Prozac for 40 years now. And uh, people use it every day for the rest of their lives. It's not so easy to get off some of these SSRI antidepressants. You really need a doctor's oversight to, to stop taking them. Um, so they're powerful drugs and they raise serotonin levels. And that's what the psychedelics do. All the psychedelics raise serotonin levels. And so there's uh, a boost in um, that's an antidepressant. And it lasts, you know, the research on ayahuasca specifically is it last, you can see the chart. There's a boost and then it begins to decline. Mood, mood is boosted and then mood begins to go back down. Um, over like a two-week period. It's, it's measurable just biochemically. And there are some ayahuasca churches that use the same medicine, the same mix of the two plants um, as their sacrament. And they, uh, 
Before they had known this research, they often would have ceremonies or church, you know, works, church meetings every couple of weeks so that people were getting, they were getting boosted on regular intervals. And so the most common question is, well, are they getting addicted? Are they, you know, is this an addiction? And the answer is not any more an addiction than Prozac is. It's not, it's not an addiction. You don't build up a tolerance. It's just that the impact um, has about a two week period. Prozac has a 24 hour period of effectiveness. So it's just, uh, you know, using the medicine as needed, which is about every two weeks. But it was interesting to me that the, the research studies actually confirmed what this established church has been doing. And this is a church that's based out of uh, Brazil, but there are, you know, satellite churches in Oregon and Texas and, and um, Europe and Canada, Netherlands, they're kind of all over, I think in Japan. So it's, and the sacrament, it's not wine and, and a wafer. It's a, a drink of this plant mixture, ayahuasca. So people have visionary experiences during the church service and they sing hymns. I, I mean, it really, it, it is a, it's very close. It's a syncretic church with Catholicism and, and a religion from West Africa that came over to Brazil with the slaves Umbandu, which is a lot about um, uh, mediumship. So working with spirits and healing spirits. So, yeah, as you're saying in this, um, and there's this, is, I believe it's called the Freedom of Religions Act, right? The same act that allows certain Native American uh, ceremonies to use peyote. Yes. And others. Is, so as you're describing, there are limited, there is limited legal use here in the United States. And, and uh, many people will travel to South America or to illegal gatherings in the United States to participate in these ceremonies. And I realize that human beings are motivated by many things, but at the same time, there are probably fewer things <laughs> than all these unique motivations, right? What are people ultimately seeking? What do you think people are really looking for, at least people here in the United States when they're willing to take these risks, even break the law, travel to South America, try something new, what are they really looking for? Well, there's the, the, the desperate um, motivation is the most, I think the most important. And these are people who have tried, who have uh, a sort of a, a treatment resistant depression. So they've tried everything. I mean, the antidepressants don't work for everyone. And so they've suffered with depression usually all their lives with no respite. And so when they hear that, oh, their ayahuasca may be helpful, I mean, they're, they're willing to try anything. And so, you know, your heart goes out to these people, really. Other people are looking for a spiritual experience or a psychological healing, that kind of thing. And, and then they're always just the adventurers, looking for, a, you know, they've heard something and it sounds fabulous and I'm going to try that. So, but this is not to be done lightly. And I, I tell people, don't, certainly never do it alone. And um, don't do it in a group unless you've been screened, unless someone has done an in-depth medical screening. So they know what medications you're on, what your psychological history is. And if nobody has done that, don't go to that group. Yeah. 
you talk about this treatment resistant depression and uh, I'm amazed. I'm constantly amazed at how many people in our society and more maybe now than ever with what we've all been through with the pandemic, the mental yeah. health issues that have, have been created or have surfaced. But clearly there are many people that are struggling with depression and anxiety and, and loneliness and, and other things. Um, one article that you mentioned in your book that really raised a lot of awareness and interest is this one written by Kira Salik in National Geographic Adventure Magazine. Yes. About an experience she had when she went to Peru. And you talk about this for a couple reasons, I think, but will you share a little bit, just a, a little bit about that article and why you referenced it so early in your book? It was one of the, it was one of the first articles that came out about um, a Westerner traveling to an indigenous ayahuasca ceremony. And she had suffered with depression all her life, even though she's a great adventurer all around the world. And uh, this article, I, I had a communication with the editor and he said he's gotten more letters of inquiry about this article than any other article they ever published. This was, I don't know, 2004, early 2000 aughts. Um, now, as it turns out, and she talked about it as a miracle cure. So, I mean, if someone's been suffering all their lives, who wouldn't you know, get on an airplane and try this? But um, she uses the medicine in the way a lot of people use it. It's not like she went once and is cured and has never been depressed again. She's continued using these ceremonies in her life. I don't know if she still is now, but it was a process for her. And that's true of most people. There's a process involved in the healing. Some people have such a powerful experience. or so, We don't know, but it turns their life around and that's enough for them. But other other people and most people who use who go to these ceremonies go over time and there's a healing process. Yeah. Um, and the, the best example of that are the veterans. There are veterans who have suffered with PTSD and depression and anxiety and been given tons of medications by the VA. I mean, when they speak at the psychedelic conferences, one of them had a, a, a slide of his medicine cabinet. He said, I, doc, doctors at the VA prescribed 20 different medicines for me. Wow. Now, nobody should be taking 20 medicines. Just nobody. And he said, and it was a panel of four people. And they all said, we used marijuana to get off of these prescription drugs. And once we were off of them, because you, you can't be taking prescription drugs and use ayahuasca, especially antidepressants. Once we were off all these prescription drugs, we then went to ayahuasca ceremonies and did the healing work. And, and so it's a, it's a, the veterans know it's a process and goes on over long periods of time and requires daily awareness and, and work to deal with you know, remaining symptoms and, and life. Yeah. You talk about um, this healing process that some people experience. And one of them is addiction, right? You talk about in your research that you encounter many people who after even a single ceremony, a single encounter with ayahuasca, quit drinking, like gave up addictions. I mean, and as you're saying, it's not always one time, it's right. often a process, but for some people it is for some people. Yeah. 
that's, that's pretty remarkable to me as well, that people could struggle with an addiction like that for a lifetime or the better part of a lifetime and in one instance be transformed. We don't have really a way to explain that. I mean, the, the, the research at Johns Hopkins is using um, psilocybin to treat um, uh, tobacco addiction smokers who have tried everything and they're getting, and you know, people generally fail at, at quitting cigarette smoking. They have to do, they do it repeatedly until they hopefully quit. But there are, again, there are some people who just, just, who just quit, but most people it's a process. And um, with uh, a psilocybin uh, experience, I think they've got 80% of the people quit and they don't take their word for it because everybody lies about quitting smoking. They, they actually do, you know, blood tests to see if there's tobacco in their system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they've got good data showing that people are quitting. That's amazing. And and then they follow them up. I think they're following them up a year, excuse me, a year and a half. And they have really quit. You mentioned that it's, there are some dangers one of them you just referenced was about taking antidepressants while doing ayahuasca. Why is that a bad idea? Because you get an overdose of serotonin. So it's called serotonin symptom and it can kill you. Mm. What are the other risks associated with, with doing ayahuasca? Well, if there's a history, you know, the general recommendation is if there's a history of bipolar, manic depression, any of the psychedelics can send someone into a manic episode. So there's concern about that. There's some people who say uh, that's not true, but most people say don't do it. Don't take the risk. Mm-hmm. If there's a history of schizophrenia, psychosis, certainly paranoid schizophrenia, y- you know, you can have a, a break. So that's a very dangerous situation, especially if you're out in the remote jungle where you're not near any Western psychiatric treatment or emergency rooms, or even if you're at a ceremony where the people are not sophisticated or well-trained, they might not even know that you're having a psychotic break exactly until it's so florid that now it's an emergency. So these are, these are rather scary stories. And then there's always the risk of, you know, a heart attack and some complications like that. So you really do have to go over a medical history. Yeah not to be taken lightly, right? And um, something I, th- I thought was really interesting in, in reading your book and learning more about ayahuasca was how it differs from many of the other, or maybe all of the other uh, known uh, psychedelic substances in that people who do ayahuasca report a much higher incidence of having had a spiritual experience rather than just an amazing experience is the way I understood. No, I, it. no, I don't think that's accurate. Um, w- what's different about what they report is they have a personal experience with the spirit of the plant. So okay. that hence grandmother ayahuasca. So uh, like the people at the Hopkins study, they're taking a pill, they're taking psilocybin, mm. which comes from a mushroom, but they're not reporting and maybe they just don't want to, but I don't know that this happens through a pill. They're not reporting a relationship to the mushrooms, whereas people who eat the mushrooms report a relationship to the plant. And so if it's a plant-based entheogen, psychedelic, often there's a relationship with the plant spirit. 
And so that's, that's the case with um, grandmother ayahuasca. And I did an original research study, you know, around 2008 to it was published in 2012. And um, I'd be happy to send that article to you if you want to put it on a website. And uh, I think it was 81% of this. No, no, it was 74% of 81. It was 81 subjects in the study, 74%, almost three quarters reported an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. So these are Westerners. And yeah. the criteria was they they had one at least one ayahuasca experience in North America. So I was not looking at the 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 tourists. They had done it in North America at least once. Three quarters had a relationship with the plant spirit, which is not something Westerners usually talk about. Yeah, absolutely, and it's pretty remarkable to me because in some of the like maybe in Christianity as a perfect example, we accept that there are these phenomenal occurrences, right? An immaculate conception, <laughs> right? Like yeah. maybe spirits or holy angels or holy ghosts appearing to certain people. So in certain like acceptable ways, we're willing to accept these extraordinary accounts of something. Yes. Yes. Yet someone has an experience with a plant medicine and they report that they have an ongoing relationship, maybe hear a voice or something which is what I want to know more about. What does that relationship look like? But we then tend to discount that. I think right. that's really interesting. It is. That's an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. When you say that many of these, like, like three quarters of these 81 subjects in this research report having an ongoing relationship with the, the spirit of the plant, what does, that, what does that look like for people? What does it, that mean? It, it looks a little different um, for people, but there's certainly a theme. And that is that... Um, People can feel like they're communing through meditation or quiet time, or people dream, have grandmother ayahuasca appears in a dream, and she may appear as a beautiful woman in a dream. So she's not always just grandmotherly. Um, uh, and even some of the indigenous tribes don't even consider her female. So it's, you know, there are different versions of this plant teacher, plant spirit. But they're all very similar in that there's some kind of exchange. Some people hear her voice. Some people sense her presence inside. Um, some people call on her when they need help and support. And they feel like she's almost like a good mother. Mm. Um, I remember, you know, this one guy, uh, a graduate student in psychology, uh, he said, um, I thought she was angry at me because she told me to stop using cocaine, sort of good advice in general. <laughs> and, um, and he said, I didn't. And I thought she was angry at me. <laughs> so people have different kinds of relationships. One of my favorites is this young guy, you know, asked for her advice, you know, in this sort of respectful, serious kind of way. And she said to him, uh, what was it? Go home, clean up your room, and cut your hair. <laughs> so it's very grandmotherly. And she can be tough on some people. She can be harsh. So it's, you know, very different. I sort of have a very therapeutic voice that comes to me that's not my own voice. That's an, that's, I hear it inside, but it's an external source. I've never had this before or since. 
It's, and it's out, this is outside. Of, certainly, I've heard her voice during ceremony. I've also heard it outside of ceremony when I'm not under the influence of anything. Yeah, that is, I think it's so fascinating because in my experience and in my learning, um, my understanding is there are many incredible things that pretty much all of us experience, whether it's in dreams or it's in, um, sometimes it is in what we now consider like psychotic breaks, you know, mental breakdowns or, or other things. Um, sometimes it's just like feelings, like premonitions and, and, yeah. and things like this, but we don't talk a lot about it, you know, out of body experiences, near death experiences, this kind of thing. But as a society, I don't think we really have a way of honoring those things. And, no, and, we don't. Right. And um, so where I'm going with this is, is I, 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 if you will, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about some of the people you reference in the book who will talk about almost an, maybe an inability to reconcile different worldviews. And they just almost compartmentalize. Like, I, I forget the gentleman's name, but you mentioned something in the book about like when he's with indigenous people, there's no question or concern. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Will you talk a little bit about that? Because I think part of what yeah. we're talking about is really comes from a very different worldview that's really hard to understand inside our own worldview. Right. I'm sort of the poster child for struggling with this. Um, I was raised in a very agnostic household. And so I didn't have, you know, the religious, you know, I didn't have belief in the religious stories mm -hmm. of the burning bush or immaculate conception and none of that was treated seriously. Um, and so this one guy says, you know, when I'm in Peru in the indigenous village and I'm in the middle of it, I don't have any doubts. I know this is real. I know there are plant spirits. They talk to me. I talk to them. It's absolutely real. Then I go visit my family of origin, you know, in, back in Texas somewhere. Mm -hmm. And he said, I sort of lose that conviction and I can't maintain it. So, you know, he's back in his his family of origin worldview. And so he moves back and forth. It's, you know, but the physicists, <laughs> they have changed their worldview with, with string theory and, you know, the way they talk about time and light. I mean, they don't have the concrete materialistic worldview that I grew up with. They're very, what I would say, they're very trippy. You know, the physicists, I mean, if you hear them talk, it's like, it's mind blowing. Yeah. But it's, um, so they, they have already broken through that materialistic worldview, but it's a tough leap for, it has been, I should, it's a, it has been a tough leap for me. You know, I have a friend who's a, a cognitive scientist, so he's a, a brain researcher and he goes to the neurology professional meetings and he basically presents papers on the mind is not the brain. <laughs> well, then what is the mind? Well, of course, you know, we don't really know, but it's far more than just the material brain. He's this very quiet, sweet guy, kind of a Buddhist meditator. Just, you know, there's just an innocence. And he gets attacked at these meetings viciously. <laughs> He's like the last person who should be attacked like this. And people just get very defensive about, um, you know, anyone challenging that materialistic worldview, even though the physicists, the quantum physics has moved way beyond it. 
Yeah, it's remarkable. And, and talking about attacking people, uh, what come, something that comes to mind is this idea of openness as a personality characteristic, right? Because right now, the prevailing thought, as I understand it, about personality in, in the Western worldview is that it's relatively unchanging, right? There's the five major characteristics. and Theoretically. Right, theoretically. <laughs> this and is what I was taught many years ago. Right. And that it's, and that they're relatively fixed. But one of the things that we're learning is that psychedelics like ayahuasca can actually change one's yeah. personality in particular, their yeah. openness. Will you talk a little bit about yeah. what you know uh, yeah, about this, that? This was a groundbreaking study. It came out of Hopkins, a young woman researcher. I don't know what led to her collecting data on the variable of openness, but yes, openness is one of the five variables that is supposed to be consistent across life, uh, across the lifespan. And so, you know, they took before and after scores, but, you know, the, the subjects filled out questionnaires before and after a couple of um, psilocybin experiences, and they became more open, which should not have happened according to the theory that I was taught as an undergraduate. So it, it really, it, it should be disturbing the psychological theory about how personality doesn't change. So, you know, I read somewhere that um, the psychedelics are going to revolutionize psychiatry. And this is a, just a good example of that beginning. We have to begin to think differently about people. Yeah, absolutely. You, you know, there's another statistic that comes from the Gallup poll. And what's the other big one that, that, there's there there are two polls that measure you know um, collect data on nationwide. Mm. Gallup is one, and I forget what the other one is. But they have consistently asked over forty or fifty years, "Have you had a religious or spiritual experience that changed your life in some way?" I, you I wonder know. if this is Pew. Pew, yes, it's the two Gallup and Pew. Thank you. Yeah. And um, every decade that percentage of people responding has increased. And in the, in the 2000 aughts, it was up around 50% of the people. That's amazing. And yet, yeah. The, and often they have not told anyone. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. What I was saying before. And, and yet uh, there seems to be more, more and more intense division, right. Or, um, uh, just what we're seeing now with the Black Lives Matter movement and more conversation about maybe reparation or <clears throat> the, the systemic inequality that exists in our country. So it's interesting to me that these, uh, this research is showing we're becoming or we're having more spiritual experiences, <laughs> yet there's still a lot of social uh, tension that exists. That's, what do a you nice, that? that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> you know, Back in the 60s, because I'm, I'm a child of the 60s, back in the 60s, we really thought these, that the psychedelics would change the world for the better. I mean, we really believed that. And my generation, I think, is more marked by that movie with the famous line, greed is good. Michael, oh, it's Street. Michael Douglas. Wall yeah. Street, thank you. And so... I, you know, we had the Beatles and all this optimistic meditation and psychedelics. And, and then we went into greed is good. And that has not been good for our country or our culture. No. And I, I, I don't, 
so I no longer have the belief that, oh, if everyone, you know, just took a psychedelic and opened up, everything would be different. I, I don't know what will help us, but I don't think the answer lies just in psychedelics. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There's no single thing. There's no simple answer. There's probably. no simple answer. And, and I understand the question. It's where I think many of us are asking this question. It's a very worrisome time. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you this. What else, what haven't we discussed? Anything from your book that you think might be of well, service to the question. listener? Anything else you want to talk about? You know, I, I, I do want to talk about um, what's called spiritual bypassing. Okay. Which is, um, in some ways, the, the Western culture has sort of um, glorified ayahuasca and the other medicines, really in hopes, again, of you'll have a mystical experience, everything will change, everything will get better. You know, I, I just heard the other day about someone dying during uh, a ceremony. Mm -hmm. You know, they had a heart attack and got to the hospital and died. Uh, you know, this is not all flowers and light. The, there are risks. And um, also, people don't... Uh, they can change and feel better in many ways and still behave badly. I mean, that's what the greed is good. It, you know, people from my generation with all this, you know, love and light, they still behaved pretty badly. Um, and there are plenty of religious teachers and gurus and roshis and shaman who are raping, you know, participants. So there's a dark side to everything. And we know in the jungle, you know, there are indigenous competitions between tribes and shaman are killed from one tribe to another, sometimes mysteriously, sometimes just brutally. So there's a real dark side to everything. So if, if someone is on, you know, this is a fabulous experience, it will then change everything, you'll be enlightened. Always, always be cautious. There's another side to it. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for pointing that out. I think that's really important, really important for people to understand. Okay. I'm just looking through my notes to see if there's anything else I wanted to be sure to ask you about related to the book and its contents. Uh, and if something more comes up as we go on, we can certainly come back. Um, but if you're okay, then let's move on to the next part of our interview, the enlightening lightning route. You good with that? <laughs> You know, well, this might come up, but I, I want to say an, another thing because of my understanding of some of the coaching that you're doing and that is that um, psychotherapy is good at certain things. And I'm, you know, I spent most of my life doing psychotherapy. If I was only in a research office for one decade, but I was in my psychotherapy office for three and a half. So um, psychotherapy is not very good at one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy is not great at addictions. It's not great at getting people to exercise or eat healthier. Um, what else can't we do? We're not very good at, uh, you know, we don't um, instill um, mystical, nobody walks out of a psychotherapy office saying, I just got enlightened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe I had a good insight, but not awakened. Um, and we don't always... Uh, focus on helping people clarify their life purpose in in a kind of spiritual way. What's their calling? That that 
is not often focused on. We're very into symptom relief. I mean, I didn't work this way, but most graduate students are trained to, to in behavioral um, psychotherapy and looking at symptom relief. And these, the entheogens are very good at all these things. Which um, is maybe not surprising when, and it's interesting to me that you use the term entheogen here, because I think yes. many people listening won't know what that means. Oh, okay. Can you ex explain what that term means? Well, it, it means um, uh, uh, awakening the God within, connecting mm. you to the God within. Yeah. Something that I, I really appreciate about this book and like I feel mentally like I've been chewing on for the last couple of weeks as I've been reading is the distinction between the psychological and the spiritual, right? Yes. So no surprise that psychotherapy wouldn't necessarily be effective in helping people achieve what is perhaps a spiritual result right? right of, of letting go of addictions, finding a calling, you know, things that might represent a spiritual transformation. Um, and there's a, there's a term you used in here and you quoted, I think her name was, it was Bonnie. I think it's Bonnie Glass Coffin. Yes. Who's actually here at Utah Yes, State. yes, she's, yes. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And I think it was uh, an intellectual framework to an ontological experience. Like kind of, these are very different things, right? And Yes. And I'm reminded of this when I listened to an interview with Michael Pollan on how to change your mind. And he's talking mm -hmm. about some of these plants. And, and he talked about when people were involved in research, addiction research with psychedelics and smoking was an example, as we've already talked about. And he would say that some people, they found it after one psychedelic experience, one antigen experience, they just quit. And they yes. would say, well, why, why, what did you, why did you quit? Why was it so easy? And people would say things like, oh, I realized that the breath is important. <laughs> I know. I know. It's very difficult to yeah. understand. Yeah. What's your take on, because this, I don't even have a, a well-formed question here, I don't think, but I'm really curious about this. How can we, with or without the help of a plant or a substance, translate something from a merely intellectual or psychological experience to but an ontological? But, but I realize the breath is important is not an intellectual experience when you realize it under the influence of a right. journey. Yeah. Um, it has, it just, the message has tremendous power and it comes in to your bones in a way, in a way that you know it in your heart. So it's not just like a commercial on TV saying, don't smoke or, you know, some, or, or eat your vegetables. It's not like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had an interesting experience because I heard so clearly in a ceremony, alcohol is poison. Now, all my friends know it, it's almost not worth dirtying a glass to pour wine into my glass because I'll drink maybe half an inch. I've never had an issue with alcohol, but it got, it was so clear. Alcohol is poison. It just, it was, it's just, I mean, that, that went into me as if I needed to hear that. It was just amazing. Potato chips, on the other hand, <laughs> still call me. <laughs> so I have not broken that addiction <laughs> or, or sugar, you know, a little junk food, sugar. Yeah. So um, 
you know, I'm still waiting for that awakening and that healing. So we can't we can't order these. So I got an addiction healing that I didn't need. (laughs) And I'm still waiting for the one I need. (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe that's it's time to cultivate the relationship with the spirit of the potato. Yes, right. (laughs) something, you know. Something else. So you 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 can't sort of order these things up. You kind of take what you get. Yeah, I, I think that's so fascinating, and and I'll I'll continue to think on that. But I really do um, thank you for just helping me. I mean, I've been aware, right? There's mental, intellectual, psychological, spiritual. Like these are different. They are different things. Yeah. But your book just helped me kind of view that a little differently in a way I feel is is useful, even if I still don't know what to do with it or how to. <laughs> you know, how to, and they, and it. they do overlap. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep going. Um, okay. All right. So the, the enlightening lightning round, this is a, this is a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. My aim for the most part is to simply ask the question and kind of stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. Okay. <laughs> question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a a challenge. Okay. Question number two. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to say something, you know, I, something came up in a panel I was on about, you know, they don't want to say bad trips anymore. They want to say challenging trips. Well, I've had a, a very bad <laughs> challenging trip, but you know what? Life is also challenging. And wow. who hasn't had a bad trip during life? I mean, where something happens, that's a tragedy or cha- I mean, so, yes, some, so I think life is a challenge. And, and the question is always, what do I learn from this? How does this change me? Yeah, for sure. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, question number two. Here I'm borrowing the technologist and investor Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Is he the founder of Pen Pal? Uh, not PayPal. 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 Yeah. So I got a little distracted with that because I have a problem with him. <laughs> I boycott PayPal. <laughs> um, ask the question again. Let me get over that. <laughs> okay. You shouldn't have given me his name. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? You know, I hang around with people who are also on a spiritual path. So we have a very similar orientation to life. I think the way I've lived my life for my truth is not part of the majority culture. And that would probably be about consumerism and money. I mean, the culture kind of works on that. And that has never been a goal for me. Which... um might be part of why you live on an island for eight months of the year. In a, right? in a little cabin. <laughs> yes. Is it as wonderful as it sounds? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. The internet connection could be better. That's why I'm in the library, but it is as wonderful as it sounds. Awesome. Okay. Question <laughs> number three. If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? It would say breathe. Mm. <laughs> okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? 
here's here's the one I've gifted most often. It's um, it's I don't have the exact title. It's a, a book about Stanley Kunitz, who's a poet. He's he's gone now, but he died at like 104 or something, and it's this wonderful. Um, it kind of interview of him in his garden in Provincetown, Cape Cod, and uh, and with with his poems. He was, uh, you know, he was a national, I forget what it's called, but a national, he's a very famous poet. And he's, you know, I don't, I had never met him, but I know people who have worked with him and he's evidently was a very kind man. His poems are beautiful. And he really shared his process of dying and leaving and wow. his his relationship to life. It's a it's a beautiful book. It's probably the last book about him and it has photos. And I've given that book to more people than any other book. I just don't know the exact title of it, but it's it's about Stanley Kunitz and his garden. K-U-N-I-T-Z. Sounds beautiful. It is, yeah. And it, at this stage of life, I think life is about learning how to die. I'll, I'll be 75. So you can do the math, right? You can do the arithmetic. Um, and so, you know, what do, what, what do we do at the end of our lives? What's life like as, as we prepare to leave? Beautiful. Okay. Question number. Okay. Question number five. <laughs> so you've traveled a lot in your life. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? You know, I, I actually want to disagree with you. I'm given the, the current generations, they are really global. I'm really not. I, I have we- traveled, but. Yeah. What about when you travel back and forth? Because I understand you spend four months a year in Napa. I do. The other, is there anything you do when you get ready to move from one place to the other that you're sure to? Besides my computer, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I would say I never leave home without my electric toothbrush. (laughs) (laughs) It's important. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, I'm. I'm just clearly tied to my computer. I have books on, you know, I have reading material on it. I take notes on it. So I don't have a great answer to that. Okay. That's wonderful. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, the the big thing was I stopped my private practice. Mm -hmm. That was a real loss. I was very sad to give it up, but it was important to stop and it's allowed, it's allowed me to, um, to, to write, to write the book and also to focus on my own end of life and to, uh, you, you know, there's actually some research that says people in their 60s and 70s, these are the happiest decades. We don't usually think of this, but as long as we're healthy, they're very happy decades. And I think um, letting go of the private practice allowed me to be happier. Wow. I, and I would imagine 
that part of it is having done that with such dedication for three and a half decades is also yeah, it's like enough already. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Uh, question number seven: What's one thing you wish every American knew? Oh, I, I, I do wish we knew we that we had more of an international perspective how other people see us. Yeah, me too. You know, my, and our egos, <laughs> the American ego. <laughs> yeah, my my answer to this just kind of goes along, I think, with what you're saying is, I wish every American knew a second language. Yeah. yeah. Do you? Do you have a second language? I do. I speak. I do speak Japanese. I was a foreign exchange student. I studied Japanese for five years, lived there for one academic year. So uh-huh. I don't keep up with it, but um, I can still read. But it was there. It. Yeah. 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 Good for you. Yeah. Okay. Question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? Well, I'll answer in terms of friendships. Okay. And, and that is to really um, listen to the other person and, uh, and, and not, n- not judge them, to listen openly. All right. And question number nine. Uh, aside from aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? <laughs> it's, it's it's not really related to happiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think actually the the research is that if you know if you if you're seventy thousand is what you need each year to cover comfortably, you know, life, basic living. It's not going to send your kid to private school, but you know, can maintain a comfortable life. And that, you know, if you keep going up and up, it doesn't really add to the quality of happiness. Yeah, I know. I know that's been very well researched. And yet I think there are many people that don't believe it. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Right. It's kind of like I heard someone once say, I've taken a vow of poverty to test me, send money. (laughs) Yeah. So that okay. could that could that could answer a previous question on what do I know is a truth that other people most people don't believe. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of money, um, one thing I have done uh, as an expression of gratitude to you is I have gone on Kiva.org, the micro lending site, uh, who loans money to entrepreneurs around the world, and I have made a micro loan to a woman named Sali who's in Burkina Faso. She'll use this money to buy rice and spaghetti and oil to sell uh, and help support her five. She has six children. So uh, just wanted to thank you for giving me a reason to do that. And hopefully our conversation is doing some good in the world, even if uh, we'll never meet the people who listen or who are touched by it. You know, that, that really brings tears to my eyes. Thank you so much. That's a wonderful thing. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Well, we're almost to the end of the time. Uh, I do have just a few questions if you're still good to keep going oh, yeah, about absolutely. writing and creativity. Okay. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, good. <laughs> well, then um, let me start with this. When did you first know you were a writer? That's, that's very young. That's very young. Yeah. So maybe middle school, I would say. And how did you know? What, what brought about the awareness? You know, what's interesting is I, I gave, I gave uh, the talk at graduation for my middle school 
And um, remember, this is a small town. And so the local paper covered this big event <laughs> and, and they quoted me. And my father pointed out to me that they quoted my writing. Wow. And that, I think, was the first kind of acknowledgement of it. And oh, and I also won a writing award in middle school. So it was beginning right around in there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Who has been influential in your development as a writer and what have you learned from them? Well, I've taken, you know, I've gone to a lot of writing workshops and I was the worst student in an ongoing poetry class in Princeton when I lived there. I was consistently the worst poetry writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's, not, it's not about the technique of writing. It's more about some of the spiritual training I've had to, to really center in my heart and write from there. And so it's been the spiritual training. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful view. And I've been really kind of fascinated by the idea that with any communication, you know, spoken or written, that there's the content there's the literal meaning of the words mm -hmm. or the intended meaning, but then there's perhaps an energetic quality yes. as well. Right. And these are not always congruent. No. <laughs> They're not always powerful. One might be and the other might be weak and so forth. But when you talk about this kind of spiritual training or spiritual development is what's been very influential in your development as a writer. How do you cultivate that? And when you sit down to write, how do you, if you do consciously, like how do you draw upon it? Yeah. I ask for help. I edit from my heart. So it's, is, is this what I'm really wanting to say? And also just because of who I am, um, I, and at this point in my life, I am saying to myself, put it all out there. <laughs> Don't hold anything back. <laughs> put it all out there. Share everything. Wow. What is your, what is your routine like when you're in the process of writing a book? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm the, the least disciplined person you'll ever meet. And so <laughs> <laughs> I do everything wrong. I mean, everything, every, every uh, guide guidebook says, you, you know, you get up and you write every morning regardless. No, I don't do any of that. So wow. there's, I think there's hope, right? <laughs> it's great because you've published, I, I know of at least five books. I think. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, right? I've managed. <laughs> um, and so, you know, with the, the, I'm working currently on a new book and I, because of, I sort of say because of COVID, but actually because of a series of surgeries I had this past year, and I'm perfectly fine and healthy, but I had some surgeries. I lost a year, so I got a year's extension. Um, but I've had to kind of work through this, what I call my year of dismemberment, <laughs> mm. which is a shamanic term. Um, but uh, I just, I, I have not been ready. So I've been kind of, you know, trying to get myself ready in an inner way and, and in order to write. And so I have to get to the right place inside to write this book. So that has nothing to do with discipline or routine, you know, and, but that's how, that's the real answer to how I write. And the book is based on interviews I've done with 
uh, women elders in the psychedelic underground. So these women have been working with these entheogens for at least 20 years, some of them 40, 50 years. And they've been the original guides that Michael Pollan went to when he when he wanted to have a safe guided experience. He went to a number of these women and and they because they are still working and it's underground, they cannot speak publicly. So I've been interviewing them and learning from them. And so the book is about that. Amazing. Uh, when, when is the anticipated publication? Oh, God. It could be two years from now. I mean, it's still a long way off. Yeah. It'll be, uh, what's 21, 20? It'll be in 2023. All right. <laughs> what, um, how, how connected do you feel? <clears throat> Excuse me. When, you're, when you sit down to write, how connected do you feel with your reader? What's that relationship like in the, in the moment of, of writing or editing? That's not, that's not the key relationship for me. And I've had people give me advice that imagine someone sitting at your desk and you're speaking to them. Uh-huh. That's not what works for me. It's bouncing it against my heart. Is, is, this, is this saying what I wanted to say? Does this capture my inner reality, my inner sense? Is, is this capturing what I want to put out into the universe? So it's not as personal as directly to the reader. I mean, one of the ways this ayahuasca book surprised me is so many people have said, I bought your book to give to my mother <laughs> <laughs> so that she would understand what I've been doing. And I thought, oh, well, I never thought of that application for this book. But yeah. I've been really, I have felt great about it. Um, so for me, it's really, it is again, back into the heart. Is this, am I matching my inner knowing with what I'm putting on paper? Mm. When it comes time to, um, create a book, like when you've settled on uh, a topic, how, what's your process like to go from that idea to the finished draft? You, I know that's a big question, but what's, what's the sketch, the thumbnail of yeah, how you well, organize. A propo- to put out a proposal to a publisher, you have to have the outline of 10 chapters. So you have, to, but then, um, you know, I change it a bit. I, I, and I have a relationship with a publisher and an editor where I have more freedom. Um, I, you know, I worked with one editor who said, look, this was the proposal. This is the contract. You write the book you proposed. And, and I thought, well, I've sort of shifted a little bit. (laughs) And so um, it's more, again, finding that, that right place where I'm going to come from and, and then uh, sort of getting the global view of the material, which may or may not agree with the original proposal, but it's, it's the, the work for me is getting to that right place inside me that I'm going to communicate from for this book. And so here's what's been in a way difficult for me is the ayahuasca book. I absolutely had help from grandmother ayahuasca. I mean, I, I had help. What what do you mean? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, there was one, you know, I wrote, there's a chapter on brain research. Well, we didn't even have brain research when I went to college. So 
you know, it wasn't in graduate school. You know, everything I know about brain research, I've studied on my own, and I wasn't entirely sure. And I, I, I need a, a, a neuroscientist to vet this chapter for me. I said, I'm, I'm one or two people away from the Dalai Lama, but I don't know anyone who knows a neuroscientist. A few days later, a friend of mine told me about a neuroscientist friend of hers, wow. <laughs> a professor at Berkeley. He read the chapter for me. He corrected one footnote, <laughs> just the format of the footnote, and the chapter was fine, wow. but I needed it vetted. Um, so that's help. I mean, that's such serendipitous help. Yeah. And, and, and so the contrast with writing about these women elders who are guides working underground and have used a variety of medicines is I've had to kind of shift my orientation from grandmother ayahuasca to entheogens in general, which is like a, an energetic shift somehow. And so that's, that's, that's a different orientation for me. Yeah. That, no, that, that makes sense. Oh, good. I'm glad it does. I thought this sounds crazy. I mean, as you were talking about, you know, people have a relationship, people who do ayahuasca, many of them report having a relationship with that plant. There's, Right. It doesn't seem surprising at all that writing about a different, you know, different. Um, yes, a different range. Different, yeah. Yes. For sure. What advice or encouragement would you give those listening who are involved in their own creative projects, their own writing their own books, or it's a dream they've had for a long time that they maybe haven't started on? What do you say to those people? Yeah, I, I actually have advice. Don't read anything that's badly written. Read the most beautifully written whatever whether it's nonfiction or fiction, the most beautifully written material, don't, don't read a badly written book. Um, it's just not good for your brain. It's not good to have that in your head. So I really protect myself that way. And, um, and, and if you're stuck wanting to write, read something that's closely related to what you're wanting to write. And that will kind of get a flow going. So writing is is as much about reading as about writing. Yeah, I love that. And that thing you're talking about, don't read bad writing. Right? Yeah. I'm reminded of this, this uh, programming term, right? Garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, really. <laughs> no, no surprise, right. for sure. Okay, well, with that, I am the last thing perhaps... Um, that I'll just touch on and maybe I can do it. Maybe I ought to do it after we wrap the interview, but uh, I know oh, in the no, email go we ahead. <laughs> was about um, just in the email we traded was about the experience I had with the rabbi. Yes. If you, if you were interested to hear that, it's, oh, please. Uh, it, it's pretty simple, right? But what it was, was about 12 years ago. It was about 12 years ago uh, during the most difficult, I think it was during the most difficult period of my life. Uh, a lot of things seemed to be going wrong. You know, my dad died. He'd been in poor health for a while. Um, I had a son who was born prematurely. He Ooh. spent nine months in the neonatal intensive oh, care unit, wow. 20 brain surgeries. Uh, my marriage was falling apart. Uh, I, was, I wasn't enjoying my job. I didn't really know what to do with my life. Just a lot of things came together. And I was looking for a perspective that could help me 
Um, and by the way, I, I have struggled with depression for as long as I've known myself and in my teenage years, fortunately survived a couple suicide attempts. And so just was in a really dark place and, and having thoughts of maybe checking out. And, um, I, I was looking for some, some guidance outside the, you know, the answers I'd always been referred to <laughs> that didn't, mm -hmm. didn't seem to be working. And, and I had learned about the rabbi who does work in our community. I think it's actually a, a really beautiful story because his, his Rebbe sent him here from Milan more than 30 years ago. And he stayed, he's put down roots and he works with at risk youth and helping care for, you know, people who are not doing well financially or, or medically or whatever. Well, meanwhile, the Mormon missionaries go all over the world. Yes. Right. <laughs> it's great. Right. To, and yes, it's ironic, years. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I just love that. So I'd heard of his, right. his name because he'd, he'd written asking for financial assistance to, to our family. Yeah. And my dad had not yet gotten around to honoring that request. So it was one of the last things he instructed uh, my oldest brother to do. It was kind of like literally on his deathbed. Hey, Greg, right. you know, right. and so I, so the rabbi's name went in my head. And when I was in this dark place, I thought maybe I'll go see if the rabbi can shine any light right. <laughs> that I right. haven't heard before. And right. And it's, he, it's a try anything place. Exactly. Yes. And um, so he was kind enough to make time and we sat down and, and he asked me what was going on. And, and uh, I laid out, you know, this really sad story <laughs> that was everyone else's fault, right? None of it was my own creation. And he listened very compassionately and near, uh, probably near the half hour mark in our conversation, he, he invited me to try something. And it was, he said, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture everyone on the planet just going about their business, you know, being born, raising families, going to school, going to work, so forth. And he asked if I could picture that as if maybe from above or something. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I, I can picture it. And he said, now I want you to imagine that you are the only thing I want you to imagine you're gone, but that's the only thing that's different. Everything else is happening just as it was. Mm -hmm. And he said, can you picture that? And I said, yeah, it's, it's not hard. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, good. Can you feel the difference that your absence makes? And I said, nope, <laughs> not a bit. And he said, that's it. That's your problem. <laughs> he said, you haven't found your purpose. You haven't found the difference that you're here to make. And went on to assure me that I have one and that it's unique and no one else can fulfill it and so forth. And, you know, I'd heard things like that before, but never really, they never really landed with me. And for some reason, when he said it to me, it just, it felt true. And, you know, yes. he stopped short of telling me what the purpose was. <laughs> Unfortunately, right. he didn't have that piece of the puzzle, but just leaving that conversation, believing really for the first time that I had one just sent me on a path to find it and live it. And that, like I said, was just over 10 years ago. And I've been endeavoring to do that. So this conversation is part of that. And that's uh, yes, yes. why I'm grateful to that's you. That's a fabulous story. And, and it wasn't that he just told you, oh, you need a purpose in life. He led you through an experience that really touched your heart and opened something up inside of you. And then you get this message and it goes right into your bones. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is... Certainly there were no drugs, you know, this was not a, a psychedelic experience at all, but there's a similar quality to it mm -hmm. um, that I understand how that, it seems 
almost simple in a way, and yet it was life changing. And yeah. and I I understand how that message got into you in such a totally different way. Yeah, I'm I'm really grateful. You know, I don't I don't know what my life would be like without that one conversation. <laughs> Isn't that something? Yeah. So yeah. thank you for for asking about that in the in the email. Well, with that, thank um, you. Yeah, my pleasure. This is Rachel. This has been so great. I know I told you in my in my uh, request for the interview that I found your book in a bookstore in Sacramento. <laughs> I didn't just buy it on Amazon. <laughs> I paid full cover price. Bless oh, your good. So yeah, it was it was uh, really a joy to to find it in a surprise, and I've enjoyed reading it. I've enjoyed our conversation, and I don't know when or where or how our paths will cross again, but I yes. feel pretty sure they will. <laughs> yes. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better. Consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.